and his provision for us. We are continuing on with Luke chapter 3 today, looking at and finishing up John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry. Luke writes in a uh, logical flow, not a chronological flow. In other words, he doesn't write uh, the book exactly as time goes along. He writes with logical concepts. It's pretty much in order, but not always. This account is a perfect example of that, where he talks about John, and he talks about all of his ministry all the way up till him being in prison. Whereas the other gospel accounts mention John, and then mention him again a little bit later, and then again. So it's important that when you're reading the Bible and the, the gospel account that you see the differences and why they're different. Some might say, well, obviously, somebody might come to you and say, look, there's a problem with the Bible. This person says this comes first and then that first, that comes first. In other words, they might say that the orders are different. Again, the writer writes with purpose. He has a purpose. And in Luke's account, he's trying to stick things together logically, not necessarily chronologically. Okay? So we're in Luke chapter 3 tonight, or today, and I want to conclude with the final look at John the Baptist's ministry. The man is a great picture of what we should be all about. Again, there are a few men in this world we should want to be like. Uh, very few. But John is one of them. We've seen that John boldly proclaimed the word of God in a world of men-pleasers. Whereas the rest of the world was looking to please man, John just preached boldly the word of God. Second, we saw John boldly proclaimed the necessity of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The change that is required by God. Not just feeling bad about your sin, but a change. Bold, John also boldly proclaimed his message in fulfillment of the word prophesied concerning him. In other words, he fulfilled what God had said about him. And then fourth, we see John boldly proclaimed the message to prepare the way for the Messiah. All of this is to get ready for the Messiah. And then fifth, we saw John boldly proclaimed the necessity of genuine fruit of repentance. The fruit is not repentance. And this is so important. I want you to get this. Doing something different is not repentance. Doing something different is the fruit or the result of the heart change. In other words, I obey... And I obey whoever's above me as a result of a heart change. My heart's changed, so now I obey. That's fruit. It's the result. It's very important. Doing the action is fruit or result. And that's what John pro, uh, boldly proclaimed. He said, look, you should look like you've been changed. Your life should be different. Then six, he says, John, or we see, saw, 
John boldly proclaimed the necessity of repentance to specific individuals. So look, there was a direct application. He wasn't afraid to answer questions. When somebody came to him, what does this look like? He told them, this is what it looks like. This is what the fruit should look like. Now today in our passage, we conclude our look at John the Baptist and his ministry. We'll see today, in today's passage, two more aspects of John's life we will all, or we all should follow. Let's read our passage in Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Now while the people were in the state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John, as to whether he was the Christ. John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing, winnowing, God to spell that one, fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wickedness or wicked things which Herod had done. Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Again, we see in our passage today, we're going to wrap up our look at John with two final mandates. You can follow along in your Bible or in your notes. You see the notes here? You can follow along inside your bulletin. If you didn't get one, hopefully there's one out there on the side. Uh, two final mandates for a faithful child of God to follow. These are two commands to obey. Two commands to listen to. The first one is this. The child of God must exalt Christ over himself. The true Christian, the true believer, must exalt Christ over himself. Notice John's humble <laughs> contrast of himself with Christ. He says, look, I'm nothing. He's everything. John was faced with the opportunity to grab power. If you look at your passage back in 2.3.15, it says, Now while people were in a state of expectation... All were wondering if Christ, if John is the Christ, the Messiah. What would it have been like to be the Messiah for Israel? What do you think it would have been like if John was looking for power and people were wondering, are you him? What would be the natural tendency to do? Sure, that's me. I mean, after all, I'm speaking the word. I want some power. I want some popularity. In our world, wouldn't that be what happens? 
a grab for power, a grab for popularity. But John does just the opposite. He humbly exalts Christ instead. They were wondering if he was the Christ, and he says, in effect, no. Here is a man offered the greatest position in Israel, the anointed king, the Messiah. Yet John says, in effect, no, I'm just a man. The real king is much greater than myself. This is so contrary to our society. What would our world say? Our world would say the opposite. Think about this. This is what we're tended to, attempt, uh, tempted to think, too, by the way. Have you heard this? Your opinion matters. <laughs> You're important. My gender is greater than your gender. My culture is best. My education intelligence is higher. That's what the world says. It's all about what? Grabbing the highest position. That's what we do as a society. We're always looking to be the best. The one that's singled out. So when these kind of opportunities arise for our people and us, we have a tendency or a temptation to do what? Grab it. How about this one? Equal rights, right? Now this is important and I want you to get this. We are all equal in God's eyes, correct? But can you see John the Baptist? Jesus steps on the scene and he says, wait a second. Wait a second. I'm equal. He's a man. I'm a man. He says the opposite, doesn't he? He says he deserves all praise. I'm nothing. Now, for us to then turn around and stomp on people is absolutely wrong. Correct? It's wrong. However, it shouldn't be about us trying to grab a top, the top. You know what's going to make a difference in this church? Fact. If the hearing are always saying, we are the primary people in the church, and I want my way, Guess what? It will fail. If the deaf are saying, hey, you got to come over and be like me, and we're here, we will fail. If any culture in here says, I've got to be best, we're in trouble. In actuality, every single person in here should be doing what? No, you're better. You're more. You're greater. This is what John was all about. You're more important. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Does that go contrary to the way we think? We walk in and we wake up in the morning thinking my opinion matters. You need to listen to me. Don't we? If John was like that, he would have grabbed the power and the authority that was deserved of Christ. He instead does the opposite. Notice the contrast he makes. John gives three contrasts here. First, he says, Christ's baptism is better. He says, Christ's baptism is better. It's so important. As for me, I baptize you with water. 
I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's baptism was just a symbol of one's repentance and faith. It was just a symbol. But he contrasts and says Jesus' baptism is God-given gift of the Spirit of God for all the believers. Or a God-given judgment. Now this is important and I want you to get this. He says Jesus or the Messiah will baptize you with either the Holy Spirit and fire. One of the two. What's his point? The Holy Spirit is what? The Spirit of God that comes on and is given to all who believe. All genuine believers. The Spirit of God indwells them, as Ezekiel 36.27 says. In Ezekiel 36.27, it promised, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So Jesus was coming, and his baptism, he, Jesus was going to put the Spirit into the believer. He was then going to indwell them with God himself to help them understand. But there was another thing that he was going to bring. Fire. Fire was for the ones in judgment. Now some might say, well, what about the tongues of fire from Pentecost at Pentecost, right? Was that what he was talking about? No. The context says no. The very next verse talks about an unquenchable fire that will burn up the chaff. The fact of the matter is, in verse 17, look at it in your Bible. <laughs> the very next thing he talks about is judgment. See, John's baptism was just a symbol. Jesus' baptism was a God-given gift from God for the believer, the Holy Spirit, or a God-given judgment John, when he called people to repentance, who was getting baptized? Probably everybody. Everybody that came out to get baptized probably got baptized. But were they all changed? Were their hearts all changed? No. The fact of the matter is, he's saying here, mine's just a symbol of what's supposed to have happened in the heart. But God will give the Holy Spirit he will give a spirit that indwells people and changes people. That's what Ezekiel 36 is about. That's what Jeremiah 31, 31 is about. God will work in the hearts of the people to help them to observe all that God commands them. That's a gift. The spirit of God indwelling or judgment. Christ's baptism is much greater than John's baptism. Second, he states, Christ's strength is mightier. He says, Christ, the one that's coming after me, is mightier. Christ is mightier than myself. John states, the one who is coming is stronger than me. This is obvious to us, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. Does anybody in here doubt whether Jesus is stronger than John? No. Everybody would say that, right? Why is that important? Because John, being a preacher, can't change or recreate or create anything. He's not the mighty one. Oh, man. As a preacher, I can relate with John right here. You know, 
more than anything else. You know what I want? And Ronaldo, you probably amen this. Ryan, Mark, I want people to take in the word of God and change and be different and walk with God, right? But I'm not as mighty as Jesus. Just like John isn't as mighty as Jesus. All we can do is what? Boldly proclaim the word. It's God that changes the heart. He's the mighty recreator of hearts. Jesus comes and he identifies, look, God, Christ, the Messiah, is the one who is mighty. He can change the heart. As we proclaim the word, God does the work. He's the mighty one. And John understands it. He understands it's not about himself. He can't change people. Jesus is God Almighty. John's just a man. Again, John is not about self-exaltation. He's about humbly, humility rather, and Christ's exaltation. John is just the instrument. He's like a trumpet. That's all he is. He's the vehicle by which God's message is proclaimed. All I am is the trumpet. I'm not the one that changes the heart. I'm not the one that gives Holy Spirit. I'm not the one that judges with fire. Only Christ is. Luke explains that Jesus is the final judge. And John says it too. He says these words in Luke 3.17. Look at it in your Bibles. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is a, a, a very uh, a graphic picture to bring fear to the listeners. Jesus was the one that would come to save and to judge. That's what he was about. Now you say, well, Jesus says, I did not come to save or to judge, but to save. He said that. Wait a second, which one is it? The answer is yes. At that point, he, wasn't come, he did not come to judge. But after he died and rose from the dead, he would be the one that brought fire. Because all that don't receive him, he will be the judge. If you don't believe me, read Revelation. He's coming back. He's the lamb that carries out judgment. He is that. And John just sees the whole picture of him. Let's look at this picture. I don't know how good it is. Yeah, you can see it. Okay. What this is happening, what, what's happening on this, this is a winnowing fork. And they are literally taking the wheat and throwing it up in the air. The winnowing fork would throw it up in the air. And what would happen is the, the wind of the Palestinian area would blow the chaff away. The stuff that wasn't important. You can see it out here to the side. The good stuff, the wheat, would fall to the ground. And so they would continually scrape this stuff up and throw it. The whole emphasize, the emphasis of this picture is to show Jesus is coming to separate the good stuff <laughs> from the bad stuff. That's what he's all about. And this bad stuff here, as it collected down, what would happen? It would be burned up, incinerated. 
And it gives this graphic picture of being burned up. There's a great movement today to say that that uh, Jesus and, and 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 Jesus never talked about. I don't know how they get this. They must ignore their Bible. Never emphasized hell. That's garbage. The Bible's the opposite. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody. He talked about its unquenchable fire. He talked about this land. And he always used a picture to explain what hell was like. Now, this picture here is a picture of what Jerusalem was like during Jesus' day. It's a mountain. I don't know if you can see how it kind of slopes off. This is Mount Zion. And up here we have the temple. Okay? Over to one side on one of the valleys. It's called the Valley of Hinnom. Right here. This valley, all the dirt and all the junk and all the garbage of the city was thrown out into this area. And it constantly was on fire. It was a continuous fire. That's where we get our concept of hell. Gehenna. This is the burning. And so it would be a vivid picture for anybody in Israel and in Jerusalem to remember. It's like Gehenna. It's like the Valley of Hinnom where everything's burning continuously. And it's this ongoing stench of burning. This was, as he says in Luke 3, 17, an unquenchable fire, a fire that never goes out. So Christ's strength is mightier. His baptism is better. He distinguishes not just preaching the word. He also changes hearts and judges sin. This is who God is about. This is why John was all about exalting Christ, not himself. And finally, Christ's value is higher. Christ's value is higher. I love this phrase. This is such an important phrase for everybody to mark. Listen to me closely, folks. John says these words, I am not fit to even untie the sandal of the Christ. Not even fit to untie the sandal of, the, of, of this one that's coming. This task of untying the sandal, what was it about? The slaves would do this. The, the slaves would come and they would take and they would untie the sandal. Before they washed the feet, remember? Jesus washing feet, remember? Right before that, the lowest of slaves would come and untie the sandal. Now, y'all know that that would be a really nasty job walking around in Palestine in a real nasty place, right? To untie the sandal wouldn't be a high job on the list, right? I deserve a better job, right? Well, that wouldn't be the job anybody signed up for. Untying sandals and cleaning feet. But John, in effect, says, look, I'm not even fit to untie the sandal of this one that's coming. I'm not even worthy. Listen closely. Get this. I'm not even worthy to be called his lowest slave. 
This is humble. This is humility. Is this what we're about? Are we like this? Is this how we think? No. Can you imagine the... If the psychologist got a hold of John, they would say, man, you got a self-esteem problem. You got a huge problem with your self-esteem, dude. You deserve better than slave. Come on. Come on, you deserve better than what you have. Wrong. That's not how John thought. How do you think? How do we think? When something bad happens in your life, let me ask you a question. Isn't this the normal reaction? I deserve better? Isn't that what we say? I deserve better. John says the opposite. He says this. I deserve worse. I got a demotion. I'm the foot washer, the untying of the shoes. No, I don't even deserve that job. Where are you at? Where are you at? Is this your heart? This kind of humility demonstrates whether you know Christ or not. By the way, what you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. Whoa, is what Jesus said. What you've done to the least of them, you have done to me. What does that say? That says, that's, this is how it would be look. This is how it would look. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be your pastor. You're better. I'm going to take my role and I'm going to keep my role. But it's not because I'm worthy of it. I'm not deserving of it. And all of us should think this way. This is totally contrary to our life, isn't it? Is this harder than we can imagine? Is this how you think? Even our kids, what do we say to our kids? I know I think it, I think it regularly. I deserve more respect. Right? Well, we are the parents, right? But in fact, here's how it should be worded. I don't deserve your respect, but God demands it. And he deserves your respect, so you should honor me. Not because I deserve it, but because he deserves it. You honor me? Because you honor him. Not because I deserve it. That's a huge difference. If you disrespect me as my as your father, you are what? Dishonoring God. And you've missed it. You think you deserve better than God. Which misses the whole point. Ladies and gentlemen, when our children disrespect us, ultimately they say what? 
I deserve more than being just the child. That's wrong. Everybody must have this kind of heart. Look at the Bible. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Look at the examples. Peter catches a ton of fish. And what does he say to Jesus? Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That's a different attitude, isn't it? I don't deserve your presence. Get away from me. You are too big, too mighty, too powerful, too holy. Now we come in and we say this. Come on, Lord. Come here right now. I want to see you. Missed the point. No. He is holy. He is Lord. Go away from me. Be careful. Matthew 15, 27. A Canaanite woman. His daughter is brought. Or she has a daughter that's demon-possessed. And she says these words. Look. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. When was the last time you compared yourself to a dog? Anybody in here? When was the last time that you said, hey, you know, I'm really a dog. I'm like a dog. I just want some crumbs. That's all I deserve. We don't do that, do we? We say, you're the dog. I'm the master. Get beneath my feet. The heart that loves Christ is the opposite. It exalts Christ and puts others above themselves. The parable we talked about last week, Jesus told of the two men going to the temple. Look what the guy says. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Oh, boy, that doesn't go well. Well, can you imagine? The Apostle Paul sitting in a psychology meeting. Okay, here we go. Paul, tell me about your self-esteem. Well, out of everybody in the planet, I'm the first among sinners. That's me. I'm the sinner. Paul, you got a self-image problem. I mean, after all, you've done so much. You've done so much. You've been beaten for Christ. You've spread the gospel everywhere. Feel good about yourself, brother. The opposite. He says, I'm first among sinners. Totally opposite thinking. This is how people that know Christ, think different. Over and over, the greatest people in the Bible are the people that view the Lord as far greater than them. Our world would say, these people have a self-image problem. 
We say, no, these people have an accurate view of themselves. Oh, boy. I clean the church out if I keep preaching like this. One name. How many people will continue to want to come if I tell you you need to think of yourself as the foremost of sinners? How many is going to sign up to come back? Oh, this is great. That's me. Foremost of sinners. All those that know God. All those that truly understand his holiness and his value and his greatness. Now that does not mean this. Go to the mirror and I look at myself and I say, woe is me. I've got hair on one side of my face and not the other. <laughs> woe is me. I'm an ugly guy that has no chin. Woe is me, I'm gray, early. I'm ugly. Woe is me. You know what that is? Pride. And it's rejection of God. Why? Because God made me this way. I have hair on one side of my face because the Creator said Mike Sprott will have hair on one side of his face. That's the way it is. And guess what? You are good, God. And it's a great illustration, Father. And I'm thankful I'm like this. Not because I'm better than anybody in the room that doesn't have hair on both sides of their face. <laughs> You see the difference? Both are rooted in pride. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Praise the Creator. That's who you are. But don't elevate yourself above God and don't elevate yourself above others. Be quick to put others above you. <coughs> John 3.30, memory verse for the week. There you go. Fits, doesn't it? He must increase, but I must decrease. That should be our life verse, huh? It's really all about you, Christ. It's about you. You're good. You're glorious, Christ. You're good. I'm nothing. I'm just... The trumpet. I'm the the dying trumpet. I'm just the instrument. I'm just the unworthy slave. But you are glorious and good. God is good. So the true child of God exalts Christ over himself. What is this humble yet bold proclamation of God's holiness and need of repentance? Get, get John. What does he get? This is a man I want to be like. Oh, do you? 
Do you want to be like John? Let's do it. Let's do a poll. Come on. Who wants to be like John? Raise your hand. You sure? Here's what it gets you. Relative obscurity. A short ministry. Probably a year and a half. Maybe two. Two years of ministry. Then guess what? You get to get thrown in jail. And then you lose your head. How many of you want to be like John? You must increase, and I must decrease. The child of God must continue to proclaim the gospel without any fear of man. You can fear it. You know, some of the things I talk about, sometimes I look out at y'all, and there's this temptation that goes through my heart. Do you hear what you're saying? Do you realize what these people are going to think of you? Temptation just goes in. Have you been there, Ryan, before? You're sitting there, you're preaching, and the thought comes to your mind. Whoa, if I say this, what are they going to think? It matters. It didn't matter to John. John was consistent. Look at our verse. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to people. We'll go on from there. John demonstrated he was more about the message than pleasing men. And there's three more. Real quick, we'll look at the faithfulness to proclaim the gospel revealed in this section. Notice John's consistency, his consistency. John continued to proclaim his message of repentance and for forgiveness of sin. Continuously, continuously, over and over, continuously. Many exhortations is what it says. He called them alongside. Come on! Turn! Get ready for the Messiah! Come on! And we know that preaching the gospel here does includes preaching repentance. You've got a sin problem, change. You've got a sin problem, you must turn. Consistency. I don't know how many times I've heard of great men of God that preach the Bible. And we all probably, I can list off some names to you, of men that we just respect and honor. And we go, wow, look at that man. He's a great preacher. But then late in their lives, they abandon it. Give it up. I could give you a name of a person in here, and most of you would be shocked. Of a man you look at with high respect, but says now that there are many ways to God, not Jesus Christ alone. That's not consistency. <laughs> 
Consistency stays true to the gospel. And the exaltation of Christ. That's what John was about. And John was fearless. John's fearlessness. Look at what it says. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him. Oh boy. Talk about picking a fight. <laughs> okay. Let me see. Let me pick the most powerful guy in the area. And let's talk about his sin. Boy, that wouldn't go over very well, would it? Can you imagine? It was an ongoing thing, too, it says. Was reprimanded. The way that the Greek here is listed, or the way that the Greek language is, it's as if he continually said it. It's almost like, hey, Herod! Herod! You got a problem with immorality! Incest! Don't take your brother's wife and get a divorce and marry your niece! That's crazy! That needs to be repented of! You must turn! Wonder how that went over. He was fearless. He didn't care what men thought. Now, listen closely. There is the balance, right? The balance is, is that we don't put ourselves above other people for the sake of exalting ourselves. In other words, if I ran around and said, hey, you got a problem with sin. I know it. I see it. You need to change. And it was all about me elevating myself and showing where you had all the problems. You know what that is? Hypocrisy. It's garbage. His desire was to do what? See change. So that there was hope. Restoration with God. Not to just put down and elevate self. There's a big difference. A huge difference. Your parents, hopefully, children, don't point out your sin because they think they're better than you. Hopefully, they point out the sin so that you can have the joy of a right relationship with God. Oh, you can know and have hope and enjoy God. Not John's, John was not fearing anything. And finally we see John's sacrifice. And because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added to this and had him thrown in jail. Look at our, and we'll conclude with this, look. I won't read it all, but I want you to see. Y'all can turn in your Bibles to Mark 6, 17. So what's the final story for John the Baptist. What's the last thing that happens to him? He's a faithful man, right? He didn't fear God. He didn't, or he feared God, but he didn't fear man, sorry. 
He was all about exalting Christ over himself. He must increase, I must decrease. Man, so what God did was he gave him a beautiful house on the hill. He got rich. No. Mark 6, 17. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. What's supposed to? For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Wow. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous man, a holy man. And he kept him safe. And when he had heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. Now, I have to admit, the first time I heard this, I was like, what? Why would he enjoy listening to him? Because the truth does bring joy. I mean, even an unbeliever, wow, this guy's, wow, he's smart. Wow, this is right. This, hey, this is why the conscience says this. This makes sense. Man, this guy really. I mean, when he speaks the truth, that's why people came out to hear Jesus. But it's their hearts weren't really willing to submit to Jesus. Herod wasn't really willing to change. I guess he had this, this thinking in his mind. Well, I'll keep listening, and then maybe one day I'll change. <laughs> Kept putting it off a little bit, maybe. And notice it says, a, 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 a strategic or appropriate day came with, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, and when the daughters of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to a half a kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oath and because of his dinner guests, his Fear of man. He was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples, that is John's disciples, heard about it, they came and took away his body and laid it in the tomb. What does being a faithful child of God maybe teach you? Where you 
I stop there, we'd all be what? Miserable. John the Baptist is rejoicing in heaven now. He's enjoying the creator that he's made for himself. He died, but immediately is in glory. See, this is a boil. Faithfulness to Christ results in eternity. Joy. It's very interesting, though. John the Baptist still didn't deserve to go to heaven, did he? No, he still was the slave that's not worthy to untie the sandal. Why is John the Baptist enjoying God in heaven? Because the one that he was proclaiming would come and die and not stand. He would rise from the dead. You know, that's what we're celebrating this week, right? The Savior that came to die for you. The Savior that came to die for us so we could enjoy him forever. We know him, we do, worship him, exalt him for every second. God, thank you again for your grace and your goodness to us. Thank you most of all for Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of John what you did in his life. May God help us to be faithful to you as you deserve the King, the Lord, the Master, our Savior, and Redeemer. We praise your name and we ask that this week as we think about your word that you will be the first thought you will be served as you deserve. We pray this in Christ's name.